Welcome to the members only live chat. This is when members of my channel get exclusive access to ask me their questions. If you want to become a member, you can do so for as little as 99 cents per month by clicking the join button on my page. Post your questions in the chat below and let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Tuesday night live stream. Um, so before we get started, I so I don't forget this week, I want to go ahead and start off in prayer and then we'll, we'll jump into what we're going to talk about. Heavenly Father, we love you so much and Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to uh, fellowship and to discuss your word and Lord, I pray that you would bless this time and Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom on how to answer questions and uh, Lord, I just pray that you would guide the conversation and that your Holy Spirit would be... Um, would go before and, and would speak and prepare hearts to receive your word. Lord, we praise you and we love you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, actually, let me go ahead and put that in airplane mode. It was beeping a second ago. <laughs> I had it on silent, but it was still vibrating and it was bothering me, so I'm going to put it in airplane mode. Um, all right. So. I want to actually start off tonight, um, I want to look at a verse, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> and it says, Alright, so verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me, but not, uh, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food is for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one with her body, is, is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a man commits is outside the body, but he who commits sexual sin or sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his, which are God's. Um, so he starts off and he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. And this is one of those verses that people like to just throw out there and Oftentimes there's no context given to it and it's used to mean all kinds of different things. Most of the time it's used to try to justify not keeping the law in some way or another. But what's interesting is when you look at this context, what Paul's talking about, he's saying that, um, you know, basically the, uh, he's comparing your body to the temple. And he's saying, you know, that you shouldn't do things that will defile your temple. And so he talks about food and sexual immorality. And um, and then he compares our body to the temple. And he says, you know, that these things should not be, basically. He says, you know, that when you commit sin in your body, uh, you're sinning against the temple, basically. 
And uh, so this, this idea that all things are lawful for me. So what does that mean? All things are lawful for me. That you, you can basically saying you can do whatever you want, but not everything's good for you. Not everything's beneficial for you. Um, and people want to say, well, you know, he's doing away with the law here. No, that's not what he's doing. When you look at what he's talking about here, um, he actually is, is talking about how, you know, there is food that is, um, let's see, how does he phrase it? Food is for stomach, stomach is for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Um, so, you know, don't just, don't just satisfy your flesh. Don't just seek after your flesh is kind of what he's hinting at here. And he says, the body is not for sexual immorality. Immediately after that, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We live in this world where, you know, people are just constantly seeking after gratifying their flesh, gratifying their own desires. And it, it's everywhere. It's, you know, whether it's, you know, you talk about fast food, you know, all the, all the different foods and things that are available to you. Um, you know, people are constantly wanting to feed their flesh, feed their stomach, and, and uh, you know, it's like they, they, they're, they're letting their stomach rule them, you know, and so they're just chasing after food all the time. And in this world we live in, there's, you know, we have fast food and we have restaurants, we have all kinds, everywhere you turn there's food and commercials all over the place. And so food is just a major thing in the world. And you look at people today and the percentage of people who are uh, have health issues related to food you know whether that be diabetes whether that be obesity whether that be heart disease whether that be um, just general lack of health you know being overweight in some way or, or unhealthy in some way it's you know it, it's very telling of the state of the world we're in in that arena you know you look around and just there's a global um effect you know of people who are overweight and i understand there's third world countries where they they're starving but uh you know in most countries that are you know not considered third world i mean you know you've got obesity is rampant and health problems are rampant um but then you look at this other thing he's talking about sexual immorality and that is even more rampant in the world um, you know, not just uh, fornication and regular sexual immorality of, of people just living immoral lives and, and you know, having uh, interaction with people, intercourse with people um, outside of marriage. You know, that's, that's definitely everywhere. But then you have um, everywhere you look. Billboards, commercials, movies, television, magazines, everywhere you look, uh, you see scantily, sta scantily clad people, basically, you know, uh, nearly nude people, um, lots of sexually provo provoking type images. And then not to mention the actual pornographic type stuff that you're going to find in all those same arenas. Um, then you have the homosexuality and, and the agendas that all go along with LGBTQ stuff and all of their agendas and everything that they're doing. And it's just all these things are, are just everywhere. And you see all this different stuff going on all over the world. 
And the idea that we are the temple really should uh, grab everybody's attention because the, the temple is a sacred place. The temple is a holy place. It is set apart from the world. And he's saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are supposed to be sacred. You are supposed to be set apart. You are supposed to be sanctified. Um, separate from the world and not like the world. And how can you let these things that are influencing the world be infiltrating into your temple? You know, these things should not be. And, uh, you know, he says that we're supposed to flee those things. You know, uh, flee sexual immorality. Every sin the man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual sin, a sexual immorality, sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Okay, we were bought at a price. What does that mean? Yeshua died to save you and to set you free from sin. And so why are you continuing to let sin infiltrate your life and influence your life and and have place in your life? Um, is basically what he's saying here, that you were bought at a price. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. It's the same language he uses in uh, relation to marriage. And he says that a husband, the body of a husband is not his own, but it, it's his wife. Um, Let's see. <clears throat> Let me find the verse real quick. But basically, the uh, the wife belongs to the husband, and the husband belongs to the wife. Uh, let's just look in chapter seven here. It says, uh, "Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does." Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and to prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <clears throat> okay, so you're, you don't have authority over your own body, your wife does, or your wife doesn't have authority of her, over her own body, the husband does. And this is the same kind of language that he's saying in chapter six about your body as the temple of God, he says that uh, your your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and you are not your own, okay? Your body is not your own. You don't have authority over your own body for you were bought at a price. You belong to Yeshua. And so you are his, you are his person, you are his body, you are his temple. And you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so why are you trying to act like this is something, this, this belongs to you. You don't have authority to do that. He has purchased you, you are his. As this is the language that Paul is using here, and he, and he compares it to marriage in chapter seven. The wife is not in control of her own body, the husband is, and the husband is not in control of his own body, the wife is. And so it's this, this, uh, this idea that you don't belong to yourself, you belong to the other. Well, that's the same comparison he's making with Yeshua. You know, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't, your body does not belong to you. You don't have authority. You don't have right to do that. And so you are defiling the temple when you do these things. And you think about what, you know, what defilement of the temple was. A defilement of the temple could be like, for example, Antiochus Epiphanes offering the pig on the altar. 
Uh, you think about bringing idolatry into the temple, uh, you know, offering of strange fire like uh, we have in, in the Torah. Um, you have um, any number of different things that are happening in the temple that were basically when something was done in the temple that was not sanctioned by God, that he didn't get permission for that, that he didn't give authority to do that and is being done, then it's considered a desecration of the temple. And, you know, in Proverbs it says that, uh, you know, he who does not hear the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. And so, you know, things that are not done appropriately, when you're not doing it according to what God's word says and according to what God says, then it, it can become an abomination in your life. And so it's not just, uh, you know, food and sexuality. You know, it's, it's all kinds of things that can defile your temple. It's not just eating unclean things and, and uh, you know, fornicating with prostitutes and, and bowing down to golden statues. You know, there's so much more that could be defiling your temple than those things. Um, but so the idea is that we need to treat our body as a holy temple and treat our body uh, according to what God's word says the, that the temple should be treated as, you know, it's to be set apart, it's to be sanctified, it's to be sacred, and it's it's a holy place. And so why, um, why would we be allowing unholy things into our temple? And so you think about what are you listening to? What are you watching? What are you reading? Uh, where are you going? What are you doing? What are you eating? All kinds of different things that you're allowing into your temple. Do those things belong there? And it really should cause us all to to step back and reconsider, you know, what is in my life that is a defilement to this temple? And cause us to want to uh, question various decisions we're making and try to uh, try to make try to make us a more holy people. Uh, a, a place, a temple worthy of the Holy Spirit to dwell in. So that's something I've been thinking about lately. All right. Let's jump into the questions. All right. The uh, first question is from Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Uh, Tracy Davis. <clears throat> she says, what is meant by fire in Matthew 3.11? Matthew 3.11. All right. Let's jump over there. Okay, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, uh, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff which with unquenchable fire. So right there in the context, I think it's giving us an idea of what he's talking about, what this fire is. Okay, so he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with the unquenchable fire. And so there's two baptisms being spoken of here. There's a baptism of the Holy Spirit and a baptism of fire. You want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You do not want to receive the baptism of fire. Okay, the fire is to burn up the chaff. The fire is to burn away uh, the stuff that does not belong. And so that's what he's describing here in this verse. And Yeshua talks about this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, the parable of the, um, the wheat and the chaff, 
the parable of the sheep and the goats, um, the parable of the soils, of the different kinds of soils, this, you know, the, the good soil versus the bad soils, you know, all these different things. There's, there's always this contrast between what is good and what is not good. What is brought into the harvest, brought into the storehouse, brought into the kingdom, and what is cast out, what is destroyed, what is burned up. And uh, he is the one who is giving that judgment. And so this is, this is cause, basically this is speaking about his judgment. And so he sits on the throne of judgment and he's going to say sheep on one side, goats on the other side, the wheat on one side, the tares on the other side, and he's going to separate everything out. And it's, this is speaking of his judgment is the, uh, the fire, the baptism of fire that he is going to use to destroy things. So, and I've, I've actually heard people pray that God would baptize them with fire. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Uh, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Because that's not a good thing. Um, you don't want to be calling down fire on your head. Uh, Lord, baptize me with fire is not the thing that you need to be praying, especially when you look at that verse and you, you look at what the context of that is. It's the fire that destroys the, the chaff, the, the fire that destroys the, um, the, the stuff that uh, the you know, those who don't belong, right? Read it one more time. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay? You, you don't want to be burned up with that fire. All right. Next question, please. Uh, next <laughs> question is from Seeking God's Yahweh's Truth. How prevalent would you say the spirit of error is in Christianity with so many misguided and misguiding others into lawlessness? with a lack of respect for the Father's Torah? Um, well, I think you probably already answered that question. <laughs> um, how prevalent is it with, with all the different people teaching against the Torah and against keeping God's commandments, against obedience and teaching disrespect for God? It's that prevalent. There's a lot of people teaching against it. Um, the good news is, is that there's a growing number of Christians who are saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, maybe we should be keeping God's commandments. Maybe we should be obeying his instructions. Maybe those actually have a purpose and we should be uh, applying those to our life. And so there's a, a growing number of people who are waking up and saying, hey, I think we I think we should keep the Sabbath. I think we should obey God's commandments. And um, I'm, I'm just really excited about all the different people around the world who are waking up and, and uh, having the veil lifted off their eyes. And that's ultimately what it is, is it's, it's a blindness in part. It's what Paul talks about. And I think, I think that there's, there's a duality to this blindness, that part of it was to the Jews and part of it was to the Gentiles. But, you know, when you look at Romans uh, chapter 11, so... Where's the part I want to read here? Let's start at verse... Start at verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. 
just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So, um, but he talks about how Israel has rejected Yeshua. And... Uh, but he says that there's a blindness that was given to them so that they wouldn't see. What was the purpose in them having this blindness? The Jews, the Jewish people were blinded to the Messiah for a time, and, and they still are. And this blindness is because God is putting, he, he put a blinder on them. Why? Well, Paul explains, so that the fullness of the Gentiles can be brought in. And he continues on, he talks about, uh, you know, being grafted into the the wild olive branch, being grafted into the cultivated tree, and this is a reference to uh, the two sticks coming together, Israel and Judah coming together, and this is a reference to a number of different things. But this idea of being grafted in and being put together, brought together, um, Israel and Judah, Gentiles brought in with Israel, and various things like that, that are all kind of pieces of the puzzle that he's he's putting together here for us. Um, but this idea that the Jewish people didn't receive Yeshua right away, but he says that they will. He talks about a time when they will come to faith and they will come to acknowledge him and to receive him so that all of Israel would be saved, he says. And, you know, so this idea that the Jewish people had blinders on their eyes so that they couldn't see Messiah. Well, I think that on the other hand, we also have Christians, Gentile Christians who have had blinders on their eyes. They didn't understand the need for keeping the Torah. And so they were they were walking around partially blind as well. And so you have the Jewish people who understand, you know, who, who are, you know, seeking and, and upholding the Torah, or at least uh, it, to some degree, um, you know, encouraging people to keep the Torah, right? And on the other hand, you have Christians who are pointing to Messiah, and so, well, both of them have part of the picture, but neither one has the complete picture. And so when you put it both together, you have the Torah and the Messiah, uh, then you have the full, the full picture. You have Old and New Testament, you have the full picture, you know. And, um, you know, so it's just this idea that there's a partial blindness on both sides. And when the veil is lifted for both parties, then they're going to come together and they're going to say, you're right. And the other one will say, yeah, you're right, too. Yes, we should be keeping the Torah, and yes, Yeshua is the Messiah, and we should be following Him. Um, and so, all of all of that will fit together, and that's basically what this movement is is happening. There's there's a movement of people all over the world today, Jews and Gentiles, who are waking up and having the the blinders lifted off their eyes, and they're saying, "Hey, I, I get it now. It's Yeshua and obedience to the Torah. You know, it's it's." Yeshua is our Messiah, and the Torah is His instructions on how to how to live our life. And you know the the Revelation talks about those who have the testimony of Yeshua and obey the commandments in the Torah. And that's that's who we are. That's what this 
what people are doing these days. So that's that's the this awakening that's happening right now is people having the blinders lifted off their eyes and saying, hey, I, I see now. And the Bible makes so much more sense to me now because I've had this veil lifted. So, all right. <clears throat> next question, please. Uh, next question is from Mrs. Elbow. Hi. Uh, and it's a super chat. Thank you. She says, how do you prep for the Sabbath? How do you keep, or you and Amanda, <laughs> how do you keep your kids interested without it feeling like a dread to them? Okay. Uh, so Sabbath prep begins on Friday. And, you know, first off, I mean, really Sabbath prep begins on Sunday because you start counting your week, you know, so it's. Sunday is the first day of the week, and you start looking at okay, we got six days to get stuff done, and then we got to rest on the seventh. So you've got six days to plan ahead, really. And so your Sabbath planning begins on Sunday, and you start planning ahead, and you start doing, you know, planning out your week and figuring out what you need to do when. But as far as prep for actually what you're going to do on the Sabbath, you know, most of the time we do it on Friday. So we start preparing, you know, thinking about what meals we're going to eat on on Saturday and preparing those, cleaning the house and things like that, uh, getting you know various chores done, things that we need to get done before uh, Saturday we get done, try to get done by Friday. Hmm. <clears throat> but a lot of the prep is um, just looking forward to having the day, the day of rest, you know, I mean for you talk about the kids, you know, how do you make it not a dread for the kids? Well, our kids look forward to the Sabbath uh, for multiple reasons. One, they look forward to the Sabbath because they know they don't have any chores to do on the Sabbath because there's no chores on the Sabbath. You do the rest of the week, you have chores. When Saturday comes around, there's no chores. There's no homework. They do homework all the rest of the week. They have home, they homeschool, they do school all week long. Saturday rolls around, there's no school. They look forward to that. Uh, Saturdays when they get to go to church and be with their friends, they they love that and they look forward to that. Um, and so, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things about the Sabbath that our kids look forward to. Uh, Sabbath is time that we try to to spend time with our kids and do things with them. Um, you know, we try to be more family focused. You know, uh, me me and Amanda aren't. Uh, we try to you know try to spend time with the kids and we're not busy doing other stuff. And we're not, you know, obviously we're not working and things like that. And so we have more time to just hang out and spend time with the kids and the kids enjoy that too. Um, and so it's just, there's lots of things that you do to prepare for it. And then there's lots of things about it that make it an enjoyment and uh, pleasure and, and that something you look forward to and something that your, your kids look forward to. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, prepping on, on Friday is, uh, the main thing is just figuring out what you're going to eat on Saturday and getting that ready ahead of time. So you don't have to to make a bunch of stuff on Saturday for food, um, you know, and any other things you want to get done. If you want to wash the car or mow the lawn or, um, you know, clean the house or whatever, do those either Friday or Sunday, you know, and just figure out when you're going to do them, but get them done on a different day. Um, you have six other days you can get that stuff done. Just figure out when you want to do it. And so really Sabbath prep is six days long. I mean, all, all week long from Sunday to Friday, you can do anything you know you need to do in order to prepare for Saturday. But then Saturday, Sabbath, beginning at sunset Friday until sunset Saturday is Sabbath, and and you you don't do any work on that day, 
it's a day of rest. It's a day of fellowship. It's a day of worship. Um, you know, and, and so, yeah, just do what you what you need to do to prepare the rest of the week. Next question, please. Uh, by the way, be in prayers for Wesley. He said he got in a wreck. Yeah, he His insurance isn't paying for it. Did he tell you about the tumor? Yeah, he texted me. Yeah, be praying for Wesley. Um, he had a he had a car accident and they found a tumor in his brain and he said that it's not, uh, not cancerous, cancerous, but they're gonna have to do some more tests on it to find out what's going on and uh, so yeah, be praying for Wesley. Yeah. <clears throat> so, question from Jeff Williams. Um, he says, "Actually, you know, why don't we pray for Wesley right yeah, now?" Yeah, I was thinking that. Heavenly Father, we just pray for our brother Wesley, and Lord, I, I pray that you would, you would lay your hands on him. Lord, you are the healer, and Lord, we ask that you would come and lay your hands on Wesley and, and place your hands on his head, and Lord, we pray, we pray that you would bring healing and restoration. Uh, Lord, whatever is going on with this tumor in his in his brain, Lord, we would just pray that you bring healing, and Lord, that this would be something that would give you glory. And that, uh, you know, the doctors would uh, just be amazed and, and not be able to, you know, they, they would just say, man, this is a miracle. Uh, you know, we don't know how this happened, but uh, you're, you're cured. You're completely healed, Wesley. Lord, we pray that that would be the case. We pray for your healing. And, Lord, we believe that you are able to heal him. And, Lord, we pray and ask that you would do so. And we pray that this would be something that would bring you glory. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. 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 All right. All right. Um, next question is from Jeff Williams. He says, Hey, Jeff. Genesis 3.24, the Bible says the angels were stationed with a flaming sword. Does this mean that the sword is, is an invention of heaven or that war had happened before Adam's fall? That's an intriguing question. Genesis 3, 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. All right, so, and he's saying, is the sword an invention of heaven? Yeah, I think he's taking that literal, like it was an actual sword, and so he's saying, well, if it was an actual sword, then... Mm -hmm. And obviously, Adam didn't have a sword in the garden, so. Oh, we don't know if Adam did or not. It didn't tell us he did. Well, it didn't tell us he didn't. But. If <laughs> Anne was the first man and the fall didn't happen after thousands of years, then the odds of him having a sword. Right. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but again, yeah. we don't know. It's just an assumption that he didn't. It's also possible there's some other meaning there. Yeah. Or that it was something else that we don't understand that looked like a sword. Right. Well, and the thing is, um, you know, descriptions are often given. You know, it looked like this. Well, it's because this is what we are familiar with. You know, so it had the appearance of a lion. Well, was it a lion? No. It had the appearance of a lion. You know, that kind of thing. So it, 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 it resembled or it looked like it had, you know, similarities to. And so... Uh, a flaming sword, maybe it was a sword. Maybe it was just a flame that was in a pillar like a sword. You know, I don't know. Um, but it was, you know, it was set there to guard 
and so it was a uh, you know something to keep people from getting in obviously but does that mean that there was war in heaven no does that mean that swords were invented in heaven no but possibly probably I mean there's most likely there's there's nothing that we've come up with that hasn't come up with you know that God wasn't able to to come up with first yes well, I'd like to remind it too that so we know that Yeshua was there at creation, like Yeshua created. By the way, Aaron's here. <laughs> he hasn't been here in a few weeks, so he's he's here tonight. Hey, everyone. So Yeshua was there. At, he actually was, you know, creator, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so God describes Himself as the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mm-hmm. And God the Father, Yeshua, and the Holy Spirit are Echad, they're one. <clears throat> so, if Yeshua was there in creation, and then you also look at Revelation one sixteen, where it talks about, you know, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So the idea or concept of Yeshua and a sword <clears throat> together is nothing like new. Mm-hmm. So for it, uh, it, it wouldn't be all um, impossible for the sword to be present either at or before creation. Right. So the idea for there to be a sword um, isn't really far fetched. Right. In the in the Garden of Eden, you know, when they when they got kicked out. So. Right. Really, to you know, if you were going to say that, um, you know, somehow. Swords didn't exist in heaven until man came up with the idea of a sword. That's that's a pretty arrogant statement that, you know, saying basically man came up with it and God was like, oh, hey, that's a good idea. Maybe I should get one of those. You know, like that's that's kind of an arrogant thing to even think that we came up with something before God did. Um, you know, the idea that, of course, God has, you know, has come up with all those things before we could. You know, those things existed uh, before us. And so, you know, the Bible talks about God having a sword and a scepter and a staff and, you know, various things like that that are uh, spoken of. And, and ultimately they, they refer to his authority. You know, he has a sword, which is, is used for judgment and for punishing his enemies. He has a scepter that's used for uh, making right rulings and judgments. He has a staff that's used for guiding us and directing his sheep. And so these are all earthly symbols that we're familiar with but they convey a um, a trait that God has that that you know it, it symbolizes something that God possesses God doesn't need a sword to slay his enemies I mean you think about that uh, he spoke everything in the creation with just the word of his mouth he doesn't actually need to have a sword in his hand and what does revelation say that the sword comes out of his mouth right what does that mean? It is his word is a sword. I mean, he's able to just speak a word and destroy his enemy. So his word is more powerful than a sword, really. Um, you know, in the, in the description that, that John had, you know, what was, what was a powerful weapon in his day? A double-edged sword. You know, if he was around today, he'd probably say, you know, laser beams shot out of his mouth or something. You know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's just one of those things that, it's, he's conveying this idea that, that his word, he's able to speak and destroy his enemies. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to have weapons of warfare. He doesn't have to 
have armed cannons and tanks and helicopters and drones and missiles and all that kind of stuff. You know, his his word is enough. He just speaks the word and his enemies are destroyed. Amen. And so that's ultimately what's going on here is is that he, uh, you know, he has any weapon you can imagine. He's God. Um, and so, you know, to say that, that uh, you know, did, did swords exist prior to man coming into existence? Well, of course. I mean, God, God invented everything. You know, everything that exists, he came up with it. You know, so, or, you know, at least the, the, the pure form of it anyway, the perversion may have been uh, something that humanity came up with, but, you know, the, the original, the source, you know, he's the source of all, all things that are good, all things that are right, all things that are true, all things that are pure, you know, he's the source of life, he's the source of creation, uh, just your ability to be able to create something comes from him, he gave you that creativity. And so for you to come up with an idea or to, to create something, it's because God gave you the ability to do that. And it's just a reflection of his own creativity. So, yeah. Anyway, this is a philosophical question. There's, it's not theological, I guess. Well, I mean, it, it is theological, but it's not. Uh, we're not really saying, well, let's look at what the scripture says here. Uh, as far as, you know, does did God... What, what, what was in heaven before God created earth? We have no idea. The Bible didn't tell us. But, uh, you know, so we're doing some speculation here and some, some philosophy here. But, uh, you know, obviously this is one of those questions that, that nobody can have a definite answer for. It's just kind of a fun thing to toy around with, I guess. Yeah, great question. All right. What's the next question, Isaac? All right, now they got me looking at cherubim. Uh, the next question is Sabrina from Sabrina B. She said, "Should Christians dine with a transgender couple? Do we know? It, we do not know their beliefs. It would be a casual family dinner. It would not serve the purpose of trying to sharing our stance. They already know." Uh. So I don't know it's how to like answer someone in their family. Yeah, I don't know how to answer that question, honestly, um, because when okay, so culturally, historically, um, in you know, in ancient Israel, dining with someone was entering into covenant with someone. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was a it was a covenant meal to to sit down to dinner with somebody. You were entering into covenant with that person. Does that still exist today? I don't know. Um, our culture doesn't treat it that way, but I don't know if there's something beyond the culture that sharing a meal with somebody would signify entering into a covenant, and we don't realize it. I don't know. Um, you know, I think that there is um, there's benefits to having discretion about who you who you're willing to dine with um, but I, you know also we live in a culture where dining is treated as a casual way to get to know someone you know so if you go to to dinner with someone as a as a way to get to know someone does that mean you're entering into covenant with them I don't know 
Um, is again, these are questions that are really difficult to answer. Uh, I understand that you're probably wanting to use this opportunity to speak with them in order to um, hopefully share some some light with them and and share the gospel with them and teach them the truth of God's word. Hopefully, that's uh, the reason you're wanting to do so. Um, and I think that that's great that you would want to to do that. You know, obviously it's it's needed. We need to be you know speaking to those who are lost and to try to show show the light to them. Um, but you know, the question is, do we need to share a meal with them or not? I don't know. Is it wrong to share a meal with them? I don't know. I would say you you need to pray about it. Um, pray and ask the Lord if that's the best thing to do, if that's the right thing to do. Um, that's the best answer I have for you. Just pray about it. Um, but I, I, I would encourage you to look for opportunities to share the gospel with anyone you can, and especially those who you know are walking in darkness. And, you know, you said you don't, don't know what their beliefs are. Well, you know, if they're living that lifestyle, I, you know, I know what their beliefs are. They don't believe the Word of God. Um, you know, they may claim to, but they don't. Because if they're living that lifestyle, they, they obviously do not believe what the Word of God says. And so they may be believing in some kind of a false Jesus um, or false Christianity, but they're not believing what the Bible says. All right. Um, next question. Did you have something? Yeah. I, just real quick. So I was thinking of this uh, same thing. Sean King commented on this subject. Second um, John chapter 1, 10 through 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting for whoever greets them takes part in his wicked works. Yeah. And then we're also told about like what... What fellowship does light have with darkness? Like what have with darkness? So, yeah. but you, at the same time, you have to have discernment because we're also supposed to be commanded to Let share the, shine, to, yeah, you know, share the gospel. So you have to discern between yeah between the two. And so the context of that dinner meeting is kind of important, and I agree that needs to be prayed right. about. Right. Thanks for that. Um, all right, next question. Uh, next question is from Kay Adams. Uh, I'm not sure. He or, he or she says, um, what is a rich man, possessions and property? Huh? That's the question. What is a rich man, possessions and property? What is a rich man, question mark, possessions, question mark, property? Question okay, mark. so like three different things. What is a rich yeah. man, what is possessions, what is property? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's start with property. Uh, property is something that you own. So uh, this coffee cup here is my property, and the coffee in it is also my property. And I will have a drink right now. Um, property is anything that you own. I mean, that's that's pretty easy to define. Um, <coughs> possessions so you can own something and it may not be in your possession right so I may own a hat 
that I have loaned out to Isaac and Isaac has possession of my hat because I gave him possession of it. You're not getting it back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so possession is, is not is, is something that you have in your possession, something that you um, you're in charge of, I guess, or something that you are, is in your custody. Uh, you possess it. Uh, what is a rich man? Now that's a loaded question there. Um, so how do you find how do you define rich? You know, if you define it by the world standards, you're going to say, well, someone who has lots of money. Well, what? Is, then you got to define what's lots of money mean. You know, I you know I I would venture to say that someone who is considered middle class in America, in the United States would be considered as extremely wealthy if they went to certain other countries around the world where uh, they don't have that kind of wealth, right? You know, so what makes you rich? Is it subjective or is it objective? Is there, is there a certain dollar sign that, that is associated with your wealth that can make you rich? You know, do you have to have X number of dollars to make you rich? Um, you know, according to the world standards of riches anyway, and what wealth is. Uh, so, you know, and then you then you could get into the debate about, well, maybe it just means independent wealth, you know. So I, I have enough wealth to be independent, and I can, I'm not um, owned by anyone, or I'm not under anyone else's authority, and I can sustain my t myself. And, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits to those things, but is that considered rich, or is that just considered self-sustaining? You know, um, but if you want to get into what I think true riches are, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the dollar sign. And I think true riches uh, have to do with um, family, friends, faith, uh, things like that. And so, you know, if if you have a family that you love and that you um, you're able to spend time with and, and enjoy and people who love you that's that's riches if you have friends that you can spend time with friends that you enjoy being around friends that uh, you know that, that, that appreciate you friends that are loyal friends that uh, will help you out when you need a hand friends that uh, just enjoy spending time with you that's riches and faith you know if you if you have faith if you know who your creator is you know Yeshua you you have salvation through Yeshua you um, you know you have that security of, of everlasting life you know that uh, you are adopted and that you belong into the family of God and that you have a place in the kingdom of God you have true riches you know where your treasure is where your heart is, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, right? And, uh, you know, store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. Uh, you know, things like that. Those are the the things that matter most is is family, friends, and faith. And at least that's, that's my opinion anyway. And from what I understand, that seems to be pretty important in the Bible too.
Yeshua said that uh, it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he was talking about worldly riches. He was talking about wealth and the things the world chases after. And he talks about how the love of money is uh, the root of evil and you know, various things like that. And so people who seek to be rich, uh, they're seeking the wrong things. They're seeking the wrong treasure. Now, there's nothing wrong with um, having money, but what are you doing with it? You know, are you is money your god, or are you using it to further the kingdom and to to draw other people to God? <clears throat> so, anyway, uh, I don't hey, know if I answered the question or not, but <laughs> I wanted to comment on the question earlier about eating with the trans person. Okay, yeah. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, through 10 through 11, and 11. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep the company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetousness, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother mm -hmm. who is sexually immoral, etc., etc. So what I said in the comments is... Yeah. I would eat with a trans person, and I would tell them the whole time how much Yeshua loved them, and I would keep my mouth completely silent while doing it. Because our love that we show to that person is going to be seen so much more as Yeshua's love. And then, then once they know He loves them, then you can say, repent. Mm -hmm. And they'll listen. You might not agree, but they'll listen. Mm -hmm. that's, my, that's my opinion. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, that's and that's one of the uh, the verses that makes that question hard because, well, are they claiming to be a Christian? Are they claiming to be a brother and yet they're walking in that sin? Well, then if that's the case, then Paul says you need to reject them. Yeah, I agree. But if they're claiming to be not a believer, you know, if they're they're claiming that they don't believe and that they're just living their life the way they want to live it well then you know Paul's saying well then you can go and and uh, keep company with them and try to persuade them and win them over to the Lord but if they're called a brother you know if they if they claim to be a brother then what what does he say you you got to reject and rebuke them yep and you know tell them they're walking in sin and I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. It says very plainly, if they say they're a believer, don't fellowship with them. Yeah. That's there's no compromise because then they're bringing shame on the community. Yeah. So, that's why the <clears throat> church has to exercise control and when a a believer begins to operate in gross sin, they have to be removed. Mhm. Mm yeah. It is a, a difficult situation though, for sure. Mhm. Mm we're living in a world where decisions are getting more and more difficult anyway. Um, you know, the morality is becoming a problematic thing because our morals are running counterculture to the world, the morals of the world. And so for us to do what is morally right and true according to God's word, we're contradicting what the world says is morally right and true. And so it really makes things difficult uh, for both sides, honestly, because the world uh, 
is attacking Christianity because of our standards of righteousness and Christianity feels like we're doing something wrong and we're being told we're doing something wrong when we're trying to stand for what is right and it really puts us in a difficult situation um, and I just would encourage everybody to do what is right according to the Word of God just stay with you know stick with the word do what is right according to the word and don't be influenced by the world and don't let their moral standards compromise your moral standards uh, because they they're saying light is dark and day is night and up is down and right is wrong and it, they're all jumbled up and confused they don't know they don't know which way is up and which way is down they don't know they're walking around in the darkness they can't see they're blind and they're blind guides and they're they're leading people to destruction and so don't listen to the world What's going on? Okay. Do you have another question? Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, it's from Ryan Howard. It says, How do I respond to someone who believes in the rapture? Uh, well, <laughs> we have two minutes left. <laughs> How do you respond to someone who says they believe in the rapture? I guess depends on who the person is probably I mean there's there's a lot of different approaches to take with with something like that I think um, what I would probably do is just say well show me in scripture where, you, where do you get the idea of the rapture from scripture show, show me what scriptures you're you're looking at and let's look at them together and so most likely they're gonna turn to 1st Corinthians 15 and so we look at 1st Corinthians 15 and and you get over here to, um, you know, what was it, verse 52? Yep. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and corruptible, and we shall all be changed. See, it says, at the last trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, we're all going to be changed. And you say, well, wait a minute. Well, let's look at the context of this, and let's read all of 1 Corinthians 15. And so, you you know, you go through 1 Corinthians 15, and you... You see that uh, you know he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and then he talks about the hope that we have in the resurrection, and then he talks about you know the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and then he talks about the new body that we're going to receive at the resurrection, and then um, then he talks about how we can the flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God, and but then he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this, this corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on Im uh, incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Okay. And, uh, but you, you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and you realize... This entire chapter is about the resurrection of the dead. It has absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. And then he'll probably turn over to, um, was it First Timothy? <clears throat> and no, was it Thessalonians? Yeah, it's First Thessalonians. He probably flip over to First Thessalonians, uh, chapter four, and he'll say. Um, 
let's see. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. See, it's talking about the rapture. Okay, that's, that's probably a verse they're going to go to. Well, again, he's talking about uh, the resurrection. He says, but I, I want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So he's talking about his return, his coming, when he comes back. And it says that the dead in Christ will rise first, right? The resurrection. Um, this is talking about the resurrection when Yeshua returns. And, you know, you can point them to Revelation <coughs> chapter 20, where it talks about the resurrection. And uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Uh, let me skip ahead here. Okay. Um, Yeah, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay? So, what is he talking about here? He saw those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But he said, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so, um, he's talking about that there's a resurrection that happens <coughs> when Yeshua returns, right? This first resurrection, he says that those who uh, who are part of the first resurrection will live and reign with him for a thousand years. Well, this is the first resurrection. The first. So, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and they say, well, because most of the time when people talk about a rapture, they say, well, when Yeshua comes the first time before the tribulation, it's a secret coming, and he's just going to snatch away his believers. It's a secret rapture. He's just going to snatch them away. They're just going to disappear. And nobody's going to know. It's not his real coming. And then the second time when he comes back, then that's when every, every eye will see and, and everybody's going to know he's coming back and it's going to be announced with trumpets and and all the world is going to know that he is, you know, he's returning. That's what most rapture people teach. Pre-tribulation rapture anyway. And the idea is that there's two comings. You know, the first time he comes down, he just gets his people. And then the second time he comes down, he's going to set up his kingdom and destroy the enemy and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, that doesn't make sense because in First Thessalonians 4, it says that uh, that those... Uh, let's see, it says, For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive 
and remain shall be cut up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So the dead of Christ will rise first. The resurrection. The first resurrection. And then we who are alive will be caught up. So the dead in Christ rise first, the resurrection, and then those who are alive are transformed. Like 1 Corinthians 15 says, they will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, right? But you have to understand the order. The resurrection takes place first. You know, the first resurrection takes place when Yeshua returns, Revelation 20. And, well, then they'll say, okay, well, what about Matthew? Matthew 24, right? This is, this is another popular one. They say that, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. Um, and then they, they skip a few verses and they go down. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch out for you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. And see, they say, well, see, one is taken, one is left. That's talking about the rapture. And you're like, well, wait a second. Let's look at the context of this. Uh, verse 34, or 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is important. As the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the, in the field, one will be taken, the other left. The flood took them all away, and it's also going to be like that when Yeshua comes. One will be taken, one will be left. Who is taken? The flood took away the wicked. And so when Yeshua comes, who is taken? The wicked. The wicked are destroyed from the earth. Why? Because the meek inherit the earth. The righteous inherit the earth. We, we are given an inheritance, a promised land, that we're going to dwell with God forever, that he is going to make his dwelling here on earth with us. Read the end of the book, right? Revelation. It doesn't say we go to heaven. It says heaven's coming here. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with us, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. No more pain. The former things have passed away. Right? So, uh, he's got this, it says that God is going to come and dwell with us here on earth, right? And, let's see. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illuminated the Lamb as its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth will bring glory and honor to it. Okay, so we don't even need the sun anymore because God's presence illuminates. Is basically what it's saying. Um, let's see. But yeah, the you know the end of the book it says that God is going to dwell with us. We see in Genesis 1, or, you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know, we see that God dwelt in the garden with Adam, but then the fall separated Adam from God, right? The ultimate thing, you know, is God is trying to work back to the point where he is dwelling with man again. It's the sin of man on the earth that's keeping God separate. 
God wants to dwell on earth with his creation. That's the way he designed it. He created the, the earth and he dwelt. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, the Bible says. But then when Adam sinned, sin separated us from God. God put, God is holy. God is set apart. He is sanctified. He is separate. And so there has to be a separation from the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. God separates the clean from the unclean. And so God has to be separate from us because we are unholy. We are we are sinful. And the whole idea of redemption is to get a to, to create a bride that God can dwell with, to create a people that God can dwell with again. And so we get to Revelation and it says that, you know, he's wiped away all the wickedness. All that remains is those who are righteous, who belong to Yeshua, who've been uh, reborn and regenerated and given new bodies and, and they're allowed to come into the kingdom and God comes and walks with them once again. He dwells with his people on earth and he is their God and they are his people. It's the restoration of all things. And that's that's the picture that we have. And so it's not the idea that God is going to come and, you know, like, like uh, the Left Behind movie where, you know, somebody's driving a car and then poof they disappear and a pile of clothes is left in the in the seat that's not biblical that's science fiction um you know the bible talks about how when yeshua returns there's a resurrection the resurrection of the dead and then at the sound of the trumpet when he returns right the, the announcement of the trumpet is to announce the return of the king and so the trumpet blasts and the king appears and Everyone should fall down on their face and worship him because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Um, and what does he do? He comes and he destroys his enemy and he establishes his kingdom. And those who belong to him will be welcomed into the kingdom and given eternal life and given new bodies and, and transformed. That's the picture the Bible portrays. Um, it doesn't portray uh, disembodied people floating up to heaven or bodies disappearing and piles of clothes being left behind you know like that's not what the bible portrays it's the return of the king and his people uh being allowed entrance into his kingdom and the wicked being destroyed and so again back to that uh baptism of fire that's what happens when he comes back is he's destroying the enemies he's burning off the chaff he's casting those who who worship the beast and and his image and take the mark he casts them where into the lake of fire right he destroys them he he separates the wheat from the chaff burns the chaff he separates the uh the sheep and the goats he separates the the wheat and the tares he burns the tares right so uh that's the picture that we see over and over again throughout scripture but anyway great questions tonight guys and i will uh just real quick I'm working on something kind of cool. I was showing Isaac uh, before we got started tonight. Um, I am working on some new things that I'm going to do online, and it's not ready yet, and so you're not going to be able to find it. Uh, so I'm just giving you a preview before it's ready. But I'm working on uh, putting some courses together on my website, and it's not available yet, so don't go look for it. But I'm working on putting courses together so that you can take a course and it will have multiple lessons and so you know I you know it could be videos where you can go through and watch a video series that has different lessons talking about a specific topic uh, it may be like a Bible study 
where you can go through and, and read and study materials and maybe take a test, have some kind of quiz or something. Uh, various types of things, excuse me, that you can do. And I'm really excited about the opportunity and the potential for this. I think it's going to be really cool. And so right now I'm just kind of playing around with it and trying to figure out what all I can do with it. Um, but I think it's got a lot of really cool potential and I'm really excited about that. So um, be, be kind of looking for that. I think that would be a really cool thing that we can do in the future. Uh, hopefully in the near future is have some online courses and you know you can enroll in them and, and go through the course and learn certain topic or certain material and it'll all be gathered together in one place and so you can you, you know you can take let's let's just say we're doing a, a course on the deity of Yeshua and so you know you go through this course and we have let's say you have uh, you know a, a five-week study or whatever and you have over the course of five weeks you have um, you know ten videos and and uh, you know, a couple of quizzes or something. I don't know. Like, but that would be, you know, something you could possibly do. I'm not saying that's what it's going to look like. I'm just saying that's, you know, potentially what it could be. Maybe a 10 week course or maybe a, a two hour course or, you know, whatever it might amount to. But you have a, a series of, of lessons that you can go through and you go through them at your own pace and it keeps track. It keeps track of what you've done. And when you complete it, you can mark it complete and you can see your progress. And it's, it's really cool. I'm really excited about it. And um, so I think that that is um, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm going to start trying to put together so that we can have that as a potential in the near future. Um, and I'll start working on some courses that we can put in there. And, and uh, if you guys have ideas for courses that you would like to learn, you know, if you want to learn more about the resurrection or if you want to learn more about the deity of Yeshua or you want to learn more about, uh, you know, whatever, you know, just various topic that you might be interested in. Uh, you know, that be thinking about that, and, and you know, let me know what you guys are interested in learning, and I can start developing um, content for that. And I'm also working on getting a podcast uh, in place so that that you can subscribe to stuff on podcast. And I'm working on getting all my uh, previous videos backed up online and archived so that we have them available permanently and stored on on a safe server so if something ever happens to this platform uh, we have archives of stuff and so that it's not all gone uh, just trying to plan ahead for the future and what that might look like and so um, anyway all that to be said saying that I'm I'm wanting to uh, do a lot more online stuff on unlearnthelies.com and so be looking for the future of, of Unlearn the Lies and what we're going to be doing there. And, and uh, bookmark the website, unlearnthelies.com, and be prepared for whenever um, I start launching the new courses and, and podcasts and things like that, that it'll be available online. And you'll be able to, um, I'm actually going to, I don't, right now you, there's not a user registration, but I'm, I'm going to add that as well. And you can register on the website and, and you know, that'll be part of the, the learning platform and and various other things you can do on the site. So uh, be looking for that in the future. I don't know when it'll be ready, but it'll be ready as soon as as soon as I can get it done. So I'm, I'm working to try to get that done as soon as I can. All right, anyway, <clears throat> um, thank you guys. I hope you have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for watching. If you found this video helpful, then share it with your friends and family so they can unlearn the lies with us. If you wanna see more videos like this one, subscribe to my channel. 
And I want to say a special thank you to those who support this ministry. We truly appreciate your prayers and your generosity. Thank you so much. And remember, the truth will set you free. We'll see you next time.